zoos have to not be a menagerie for the enjoyment of people. It needs to have a higher purpose uh, and it needs to have a very strong education focus. People need to understand what our impact is on wildlife. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Erna Walraven has worked for more than three decades with wild animals, most recently as the senior curator at Taronga Zoo. The more time Erna spent with animals, the more she felt they had something to teach us. The result is her 2019 book, Wild Leadership, What Wild Animals Teach Us About Leadership, a fascinating discussion of the complexities and differences between animal communities. Erna, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here, Andrew. So how did you get into caring for animals? Well, that's a, that's a bit of a story, actually. I met my husband overseas, ended up coming here for six months um, in 1980. I was a translator and interpreter at the time. I used to do Dutch, German, French, Spanish and English. But suddenly English had to be my strongest language. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just do some fun stuff, pick up the local lingo better before I sit for my exams because you had to pay for every exam separately. So the the English German was one lot of money and the English Dutch was another lot. So I thought I'll just learn Australian colloquialism a bit better. And I started working in um, on hobby farms and I just loved animal husbandry. So I still passed my exams, ended up working the Commonwealth Bank as a translator and interpreter, um, translating exciting stuff like annual reports of Nestlé or something <laughs> like that. And uh, then I did a, a job, um, uh, sorry, did a course on t in TAFE as, um, in zookeeping, and I was offered um, a very junior position at the age of 31. Um, but, uh, yeah, never looked back. I then did a degree whilst I was working and all of that. But, yeah, it was um, a very big career change early in life. Mm. I decided that um, I didn't really want to be a translator. That was just something I'd picked because I happened to be good at languages and I just picked them up uh, and I liked travel. But it was never a conscious choice. You describe in your book one gorilla, Kababu, as my friend. What was your relationship like with the animals at Taronga? You very much tried to be a servant to the animals, allowing them to live their own lives. So with Kibabu, I considered him my friend, probably. Um, but at the same time, I would hope that he would see me as something in the background that miraculously provided whatever he needed to live his life with mm. his family. Um, you, you don't want the animals to rely upon you. Your, your task is to allow them to live as natural a life as they can in human care. So, uh, but I, I 
was very fond of him. So I, I did call him my friend, but I would certainly hope that he didn't see me in that same light. As someone who, who meant him no harm, that he mm. didn't need to be frightened of, but he, he had to be in charge of his group. That was his job, not, not to re relate to humans too much. You describe in your book uh, humans as social apes. Uh, what similarities do we share with primates? Oh, very much that we have our sociality as one of the main aspects of needing to be happy. Uh, for us to lead a happy life, I mean, there's so much research on our sociality now and how we live longer, more healthy lives if we have a good social life. Um, mm. You know, the elderly being lonely is not just about being lonely, it, it's about lacking the social contact, which probably is what puts your immune system under stress, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, we're as social as the animals are. We, we find that with animals in human care, if you need to say, I don't know, a little monkey breaks a tooth and you do have to get the dentist to them before it becomes a problem. You need to remove them from the group and give them an anaesthetic to be able to do some dental work on them. But you would take one of their mates with them uh, out of the group mm. so that mm. when they wake up, there is someone else there and they're not alone. Um, and we need people as much as they do. I mean, all of us, I think are social to a point and, and like to then just quietly slink away for a while and, you know, be on our own for a bit. But at the same time, we do need people and, and we are very social apes. Mm. And the similarities in DNA terms were really striking to me. Uh, you point out that we think of chimpanzees and gorillas as basically the same, but whereas in fact chimpanzees are more similar in DNA terms to humans than they are to gorillas. That's right. And they are both big, black, hairy apes from Africa. Yes. Uh, and people, I think lay people would often not know the difference when they look at a picture. Because I often, in, in literature, come across a picture of a gorilla and someone is, you know, labelled it as chimpanzee or vice versa. So they look very similar, but their behaviours are very different. Mm. Um, and, yeah, chimpanzees and bonobos are closer related to us in terms of DNA similarities than they are to uh, gorillas, yeah. And that, that's a fascinating aspect. I mean, that really puts into perspective how close we are. Yes, and you point out that they can catch many of our diseases and, and also use many of our medications, which I hadn't realised. Yes, and in, uh, in zoos we use human specialists, human heart specialists, human dentists, human endocrinologists, whatever it is. And, I mean, it's really good because they find it fascinating and usually consult free of charge because <laughs> they love coming to the zoo and mm. uh, get to see a, a magnificent creature so close up. But, yeah, most of the drugs we can use, it depends very much on weight. The, the drugs are usually made for a certain amount of weight person. So if you're going to use it on a two- 100 kilo gorilla then you obviously need to adjust the dose and mm, as you um, would for a 200 kilo person presumably. that's right yeah yeah so um yeah very similar and we have to be incredibly careful with the common cold um, it, it's well known now that primitive human societies when they met with colonizers they would often suffer from the co most common diseases such mm. as colds 
could really have a severe impact. So we very much avoid um, any of our staff working with the great apes in particular when they've got a cold um, and, you know, they just get to work somewhere else where that impact isn't uh, as great. And that's one of the things people visiting a zoo often don't understand. They might take a bite from an apple and then throw it over the barrier um, for, for the monkeys or the apes. And if they've got any bugs, any diseases, they could really have quite a severe impact on those animals. Mm. It was once thought that humans were the only uh, species that used tools, but uh, we now know that's far from the truth. Tell us about some of the examples of uh, primate tool use. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, Jane Goodall who found that um, in the 70s, I think it was. And uh, men, man had always been defined as man the toolmaker. And suddenly that had to be redefined because if, chimpanzees could use tools and that was um, about fishing for termites so they love termites there's a termite mound they stick a, a long grass or a stiff kind of you know bit of tree branch down it and um, because they've licked it first the termites will will attach themselves to it they pull it out and then they sort of you know take a whole string of of termites to to munch up so um, that was one of the first signs. But, but there are other ones. There's this um, great story also told by Jane Goodall how um, a fairly mid-ranking male used an empty drum um, to enhance his display to scare the living daylights out of all the other males because suddenly, you know, he was making this enormous noise as he ran towards them in, in full bluff display. Um, that by using that as a tool to enhance his, his toughness, his display, mm. the, the, the big noise that he could make, um, he became the leader for a short while because he, he had intimidated everyone enough to think that, you know, he was a bit unbeatable, really. Um, and then uh, there, there, while there are so many examples of, of how they can use things, We've, we had this... Um, Great story, little anecdote in the zoo. We we knew that chimpanzees used rocks to open hard nuts. So we thought, oh, that'd be great to show the public because we already had a pretend termite mount that we fill with jam one day and honey the next and all of that. And they use that um, on full display. So we thought, well, we, we start giving them macadamia nuts. They're really hard to open. They can't just crush them with their teeth. So they do need to use a tool. So our keeper, Paul, spent um, evenings, you know, as he brought them in for the evening, late afternoons, just showing them with a rock how to open them and then passing them through the wire to, to all the chimps. And they loved them. I mean, they're a good nut, um, the, the macadamia. So he did that for a few days. So they really got the hint, you know, you, you can open them. And then when you eat them, they're really tasty. So we uh, attached this rock on a chain to a rock platform and um, Paul would throw all the macadamia nuts over the moat and um, they would come in that evening with their cheeks bulging like chipmunks because they'd kept all the nuts and they lined up in front of the wire in front of Paul, their keeper, and then handed him the nuts for him to open. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we thought it was great because the tool was the keeper. The tool was Paul. They used 
they demonstrated tool use, but um, they realised their keeper could do the job for them. So they did learn eventually. High-level high tool use. Yeah, high-level. But they, they did learn eventually how to use the rock and, and open the nuts themselves. And there's the mirror test too. Uh, tell us about what the mirror test is and how what that yeah. reveals. So this is an interesting test. It's, it's uh, a test to look at theory of mind. And theory of mind is all about understanding that you are a separate being and that other beings also have thoughts and perspectives and, and ideas about the future or whatever it may be. And that is tested, uh, I think it was first done on chimpanzees in about the 70s. Um, they put a white dot on the forehead of the chimpanzee, then give them a big mirror. And if the animal goes to the mirror and touches its forehead, like, oh my goodness, what's that white blob doing there? Then they know who they are in the mirror. And once again, it's one of those tests that are quite anthropomorphic. I mean, we... Um, use a mirror because we recognize self and then by recognizing self we recognize that others are others with mm. their own perspectives of life but perhaps we can't always use the mirror test on all animals people all thought for a very long time that elephants although they're you know obviously very intelligent um, didn't have this theory of mind thing but it wasn't until they had a large enough mirror that they realised um, that, yes, elephants too um, can recognise themselves and, and therefore um, have theory of mind. But now they've proven it with, with quite a lot of different species. And um, they still, for to my knowledge um, of the last research, they haven't demonstrated it with dogs and people will try it on their dogs and cats at home and they usually just look behind the... Mm. mirror don't they 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 don't go oh, that must be me that doesn't mean that they don't have theory of mind I think we just haven't found the test to know whether they do or not the mirror test may not be what demonstrates it in some other species and which species do try and rub the dot off their heads when they um, see it in the mirror? Yeah, so um, it's mostly known about uh, the, the great apes um, and elephants. Um, they are testing a number of other species such as birds. I think they've now done ravens, which I quite like because my name is Bolraven, Walraven, you know. So um, I always <laughs> like the fact that they're very smart. Yes, yes. <laughs> you have a theory of mind built into your last name there. <laughs> That's right. But uh, theory of mind is very important if we talk also in this chat about an ethical life because I don't think you can lead an ethical life without having a perspective that others also have a mind and it matters. Mm, mm. And uh, quieting down your monkey mind, as, uh, as, as Buddhists put it, is, mm. uh, is so crucial to having that calmness to lead. Mm. Um, let's talk about some of your theories of leadership and what we can learn from animals about those theories. Uh, you speak about uh, uh, gentle leadership uh, with the example of uh, uh, Shibani, uh, the uh, the gorilla in, uh, in Nagoya Zoo. Mm. Uh, tell us about what gentle leadership is. Yeah. Um, 
I think gorillas are an interesting uh, species. In the book, I talk about them as an example of an authoritarian, autocratic leader, really. He is the absolute ruler of his troop, which is his harem of females and their offspring. Um, but he is also a very gentle leader at the same time. Although he is an autocrat, um, he will play very gently with his offspring. Um, he will be a ruler which is largely benign. If the females are squabbling, it's his job to restore harmony in the group. And he won't do that by bashing them around or to separate them if they're squabbling. But he will often just need to sit in between them. You know, he might just walk up. Sometimes it's enough, he'll just raise his eyebrows and uh, that's enough to settle any dispute in his group. So they are, although they are an authoritarian leader, a good guerrilla leader is also very gentle. Um, I mean, with all the examples I give in the book, there, there are bad guerrilla leaders too. And, and perhaps they've had a you know, not bringing in a more disruptive group or a violent group or whatever, as happens with humans. You do need a role model in your life to base your adult perspective of life on, I think. Mm. You discuss uh, egalitarian leadership through uh, through bonobos. Tell us about what's uh, special about bonobo society. Bonobos are fascinating to me because they are as closely related to us as chimpanzees are. We, we share equal amount of uh, DNA similarities with both of those species and they're very different whereas the chimpanzee is male dominated and um, they resolve conflict with violence. Um, bonobo societies are matriarchal the females don't get to the top position by having a good fight with the other girls. Um, it is bestowed upon her um, by the others, so it's usually older females that are in charge. And the difference it makes in the end for the followers, because I've very much tried to look at leadership from the perspective of the followers, not the one who gets the benefits from being in charge. Um, Chimpanzee males, for example, you only find 50% of adult males have survived, uh, of males survived to adulthood. Mm. Um, so all this fighting amongst themselves for hierarchy and position, um, it takes a big toll on their well-being. Yeah. In bonobo societies, yes, they are under the thumb. The, the females will tell them off if they don't behave right, particularly if they approach the females with sexual advances that are unwanted. They get, you know, possibly um, beaten up a bit by a couple of the females. But 100% of males, um, well, there are equal numbers of males and females in adulthood in bonobo society. So although they are under the thumb, perhaps bonobo males have what many males would desire, um, dissolved responsibility, enough to eat, and plenty of sex. Um, so, in a way, I think under their uh, matriarchal society leadership, they are better off than male chimpanzees, I think. The good thing about the 
bonobos is that they are quite egalitarian. Resources are shared more evenly. Um, they don't um, make war like chimpanzees will fight severely with neighboring troops that they would fear invade their territory, whereas bonobos usually are sharing food with the neighbors or having sex with them in no time at all. So they're egalitarian in their distribution of resources and um, they're more amorous um, uh, pursuits. You say that watching them eat is a bit like watching a French family have uh, have lunch, a sort of long protracted uh, affair with a, a savouring of uh, of each of the, each bite. That's right, and and they do share. They they are lovely to see, and they're delicate. They will delicately peel the fruits, and um, the chimpanzees are. Um, I do adore them, but but they are pretty rough and ready. They they're stocky. Uh, very strong. Um, they they can be quite brutal, whereas bonobos, although they can be feisty in the defence of what they believe is unwarranted behaviour, they are more elegant. They're slightly longer limbed. Um, they sort of more dancey in the mm. in the environment, and they are kinder towards each other. So interesting from a leadership perspective, given that we share a common ancestor not that long ago, somewhere between four and six million years ago, which in evolutionary terms is not that long, we've probably evolved with a bit of a, a blueprint mm. uh, in our brain of what our expectations of leadership are. And I think we tend to be unhappy unless those leadership expectations are delivered upon. And we now probably live more in a society that um, it is difficult to lead in that way uh, of delivering the right things. And we are dissatisfied in many cases with the leadership that we see in the world around us, whether it be in politics, business, sports administration, anything mm. in our modern lives, we, we don't think the leaders always live up to what we think they should be delivering. You talk too about uh, elephants as being another uh, matriarchal, uh, example of matriarchal leadership. Um, they they sounded actually a little like a sort of constitutional monarchy, the way you spoke about leadership yeah. transitions there. Uh, that, that is true. The, it, it is often um, the oldest female will lead the troop and it is often her daughter who may inherit the leadership when her mother dies or is either beyond it or whatever. Once again, a, a, a matriarchal society where the females don't fight for leadership. Um, it's bestowed upon them. The group wants the oldest, wisest female to lead them. She's often the one that has the best memory of where the waterhole was in the last severe, severe drought 20 years ago. And they will follow her, trusting her wisdom and her mm. knowledge for days through dry landscapes uh, because she knows where the waterhole is and they just you know, go on her wisdom uh, and trust that she knows 
And, and trust is the one thing that is common in all these animal societies, um, is what they expect from their leaders. Mm. They want to be able to trust them. They want to trust that they keep them safe. They want to trust that they make the best decisions um, for the entire community. Um, and they want conflict to be resolved. And that is something, too, that I see in the workplace that often managers know that a couple of their um, workers are squabbling, but they don't do much about it. It's their problem. They need to sort it out. Right. Um, whereas in animal societies, good leaders make sure that conflict is resolved quickly. And it's an expectation of leadership that animals have, certainly. We tend to think of democracy as being a human invention, but you point out in your book that uh, animals as diverse as African wild dogs or buff buffalo have democratic processes to decide uh, where the pack should go. Uh, tell us how voting works among those species. Yeah, well, obviously there's... Um there's no polls, so you need to come up with some physical expression of what your desires are. Um, a good example, too, are the um, white-faced capuchin monkey, small South American monkey, um, very hierarchical, um, male-dominated, um, very strong ranking system. And yet the most important decision of any day for a troop of monkeys like that is where do we go next? Mm. Where do we go now? To find some food you know you can walk into I don't know a leopard waiting for you or in a good food tree so it's a very important decision um, but anyone in the troop can indicate their preference by um, starting to move in that direction and looking over their shoulder as in a come on guys um, and as soon as they have two or three or four others going in that direction the whole troop even the mm. most dominant ones will go okay that's where we're going um, often it is lactating females that are followed and I think they've just got more skin in the game I mean they need to provide food for their offspring um, and um, they're very keen to get to where the food is and to be safe and all of that. So they are often ones that are followed. Uh, whereas um, other voting systems happen in um, African wild dogs. And actually one of my co colleagues who now works at um, Taronga Western Plains Zoo in Dubbo, Neil Jordan, he was sitting for you know, months and months in a vehicle at a safe distance from the African wild dogs he was studying. And he started to notice this, this funny behaviour whereby when they were all resting, one or two of them would get up and start trying to sort of rally around a bit and they would expel air through their nose like a sneeze. And as soon as there were a couple of other animals and doing that sneezy thing, they would go off on another mm. hunt. And it's probably the most hungry animals, you know, the animals most motivated to go are trying to get the others to come along with them. Um, and if it was the any of the alpha, so they've got an alpha male and female who, who jointly are in charge of the group. Um, if it was one of the alphas who was getting up and sneezing, then the whole troop would be up in no time at all. Um, and it w might only take three or so animals to, to get the group to move on and go on the next hunt. If it was um, a lower ranking animal, 
it might take a few more animals sneezing to get the troop to go. And uh, yet again, that's not dissimilar from sitting around a meeting table Mm. and someone who's not very high-ranking coming up with a good proposal. If that person can get two or three or four people around the table saying, oh, well, that's a good idea, then the the high-ranking ones will probably click in and go, yeah, okay, well, let's go there. Let's give that a chance. You point out that leadership involves risk and uh, you have the example of the head female meerkat who Mm. is the first often to put her head out of the burrow in the the morning. Uh, Why why is that risk-taking tied up in uh, in leadership in that species because you look after your your troop uh, and I think that comes with leadership and that is another thing that I think sometimes in human society is forgotten leadership is about responsibility as much as it is about hierarchy and privileges um, unless you're willing to take the responsibility for the well-being of your followers Uh, you don't deserve the leadership position. And I think um, meerkats are particularly good at taking that responsibility. Responsibility is big in meerkats anyway. They do that whole standing on guard, um, sentinel position, and Mm. they they will swap over seamlessly. There's always someone on the lookout um, so that the others can eat in peace and, and, you know, forage uh, and be well. And they've got great communication in doing that too. The females, um, sorry, the the troop will take turns in being the sentinel and they've got a different call for an aerial predator to warn everyone, a different call again for a snake on the ground and Mm. then there are levels Mm. of urgency that they can put towards that too. But certainly when they emerge from the burrow after the night, the, it's usually the, the matriarch who will stick her head out first to see what's happening. It reminded me of the military motto that officers eat last, mm. uh, that notion that to be a good good officer first and foremost is to take good care of the, the physical needs of your group. Yes, and uh, that is the case too with the raising of the offspring. Um, African wild dogs do this very well. Everyone in the African wild dog group is responsible for feeding the puppies. Only the, the, the alpha pair is the only ones to breed. But anyone in the group, if a puppy is begging, will regurgitate their food and give it up uh, for the greater good of raising the pups. Um, as opposed to lions that don't do that. The the male lion does very little of the hunting. The female does all of it. Um, the females, um, the lionesses, do most of the hunting, 80% or so. But once they've got their prey, the male lion gets what's called the lion's share. Mm. Um, so he eats before his offspring. But he's got so many females and so much offspring, perhaps he can be a little bit lax- more lackadaisical about <laughs> how well they are fed. You point out that in many of these contexts, bullies don't prosper for very long, that uh, animal species want a leader who's competent and trustworthy and and benevolent. That's right. And um, that's an example that uh, really got me interested in this whole topic because when you put together a social group in, uh, in a zoo, 
you want to get the combination right of, you know, the size of the group and the age structure and, and the gender structure because that you know that's what's going to make it more happy than anything else. Um, so out of that, a leader will emerge. And who is that leader and how do they get there has always fascinated me because there's nothing much you can do about it as their carer. Um, they will decide. Mm. And sometimes a bully will get to the top by sheer intimidation and violence and fighting harder than anyone else, mostly in male societies, I'm, I, I might add. Um, a bully in an animal society will only last as long as a leader until there's a viable alternative. As soon as there's a viable alternative, the community will get behind the, the uh, alternative and right. there'll be a challenge. Uh, there'll be a challenge and the community of animals will support the challenger if it looks like he'll be a better leader. Be a better leader. Tell us, tell us about the importance of adaptable leadership and what we can learn from hyenas. Yeah, hyenas are also fascinating. I'm, I'm saying that about all the animals, aren't I? I mean, that's how I do You're feel You're an animal about lover. There's, that's uh, there's right. no, no shame in that. So hyenas, I called them in the book the adaptable leader. It, it's a little bit of a long shot because their adaptations have come over millions of years of evolution. Um, sometime in the past, they would have been uh, a little disgruntled, the females, about the survival of their offspring. So they changed physically uh, in order to be slightly larger than the males. They are now 10, 15% larger than the males, and they are dominant. So they are um, the original founders of the Me Too movement. They, they even developed genitalia that don't allow for any unwanted advances uh, from the males. They have to be completely willing um, to participate in any sexual activity because of the genitalia they developed. It looks very much like the undercarriage of the male um, in the world in the way that's um, changed shape over millions of years. They too really are a little bit like the um, the passing of the royal the 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 royal uh, crown because the female in charge it's most likely that her offspring one of her female offspring will be the next leader, mm -hmm. um, which amuses me because the regal animal is usually the lion, isn't it? Whereas the lion. Um, the male gets his position by fighting the other male and ousting him, whereas so there's no passing on, you know, to your sons, uh, your your position, where it is the case in hyenas that are usually because they are known to eat a lot of um, scavenging kind of meat, um, which is not entirely true. They do a lot of hunting too. Um, they usually don't get a nice description and yet they have a much more similar um, social structure to mm. the royal family, perhaps. And you talk about them as being quite complex in way, the way in which they manage their societies, uh, this notion of a fission fusion society among hyenas. There are. Quite a lot of animals have fission fusion, so, you know, the coming together of a much larger group to separating off to go hunting with a small subgroup um, and then to coming together again. 
that requires a lot of social interaction. Mm. Um, there's usually a lot of greeting involved, um, you know, to re-establish one's rank, one's position, the fact that we have a relationship or the fact that um, I trust you, you trust me. There's a lot of uh, uh, sniffing of that undercarriage that I mentioned, which, you know, is a scary thing. There's a big jaw <laughs> right next to some pretty delicate structures. Um, so all of those relationships after uh, the coming together again have to be re-established. So mm. um, there too are examples for us. It, it is important that we continue to reinforce our relationships, particularly in the workplace, which is a little bit like fission fusion, I think. You, you come together for a number yes. of hours a day and then there's long weekends and there's um, holidays and, you know, you, you separate again for periods of time. And I've, been, I've worked in workplaces where the leader would just come in and sneak into their office without saying anything. Um, that doesn't help to reinforce your relationship with your troops. You know, mm. it's important to acknowledge them, particularly after absences, and um, show that you value your yes. your your people. Um, and it, particularly through acknowledgement, like, hi, how are you? Did you have a good weekend? You know, th that sort of chit-chat is important. Um and once again, that is reinforced in animal societies. Chimpanzees do the same. They will even greet each other in the morning uh, after sleeping to yeah. and, and give each other hugs and um, just, oh, I'm pleased to see you. Uh, and, and that, I think, for cohesion of a group is really important, as it is for us. You also talk about uh, laissez-faire leadership, about yep. uh, particularly lions and how they... Uh, manage to, uh, to to work largely independently, although, as you point out, sometimes they can be pretty ferocious when they're in a pack, uh, as, uh, as once occurred to you. Yes, they can, yes. Um, they learn very quickly. I think you're referring to the fact that um, we, we had some cubs and often to make sure that animals are comfortable with the human care, you spend a bit of time with them in the physical space before they get too big to be dangerous. Um, so we had some uh, lion cubs and because you don't want them to be scared of people because we're looking we're going to look after them um, we, we you know play with them when they're cubs um, and then you stop doing that when they're just about to kill you well a little before uh, in preference so um, I'd been away and the keepers had mentioned to me that you know they were getting quite big um, so I thought oh well one, I want to go and check out for myself whether it's still safe for the keepers to be in mm. there, but also this might be my last time of the great privilege of being that close to them. And there were three cubs, and um, one, you know, be playing with them, um, you know, pulling a rope, you know, they pull a rope, I pull a rope, whereas the other two would really gang up around the back of me to grab me in the neck and uh, you know, do me in. It was still playful, but they were practicing. They were practicing big time. So there were about six months then, so that was the last time I went in with them. But very good at teamwork. Yes. Um, very good at teamwork. Mm. There's a range of interesting observations you make in the book uh, outside the leadership space, uh, which I think are, are relevant to think about our, our own systems. Uh, one is talking about... Um, 
species for which their digestive systems don't really match their foods. Uh, and when you were talking about pandas and binturongs having these short carnivore mm. digestive systems but eating plants, um, that then causes terrible problems for them, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, they have a very inefficient digestive system. They have to consume huge amounts of, uh, of plant matter in order to get yep. the goodness out of it. Yeah. So that's really the, the problem um, when evolution causes catches you halfway between two systems. Mm. Um, and and binturongs, I, I looked after binturongs, they, they are amazing. They're, they're such wonderful animals. Um, a bit bear-like in their, in their look. Uh, they're mm. from, uh, from Asia. Um, so yeah, they they're, have a carnivore dentition, carnivore gut, and they eat mostly plants uh, because of the pressures of, you know, they found themselves in uh, a forest that provided more fruits than, than, uh, than meat, so they, they went that way. But, yeah, enormous amounts they have to eat, and it comes out partially, very partially digested mm. um, because um, the gut of uh, an animal that eats plant material, particularly if it's rough, plant you know like eucalyptus or whatever it goes on forever and it just you know crawls around and around and around because you need a lot of time to break down the cellulose to order to get the nutrients out of it whereas they've got a short carnivore gut and it comes out mostly undigested the food i mean if you give a bincher on grapes they look come out looking like grapes <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's a, a lot of food goes in they still eat a little bit of um uh, of meat, but um, they, they really like their fruit. But the, the reason I made the points is that we are caught um, possibly in, in the same situation in that we are a little bit of a mismatch perhaps uh, in evolutionary sense with where we found ourselves now in the environment we live and what we are designed physically, our brain in particular, mm. to be. Uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, the fact that we walk upright. Um, it, we're not that well designed for it. The fact that we have to sit uh, a long time to do our job. We, our bodies are not designed to do these sitting jobs. So it, mm. it gives us physical problems. And I think it's a bit the same with our brain, um, that there are these statements um, you know, that, that we find that we have an ancient brain in a modern skull and we still have our instincts still rule. I think we like to see ourselves as a lot more sophisticated than that and we can ration things out later, but our first reaction to almost everything that happens to us is instinctive. You know, you will have decided in a microsecond this morning whether you like me or not um, we will still go to a party and people will sort out their hierarchy the question about what do you do is all about hierarchy um, all of the reactions we have if the boss of a small factory says put something over the loudspeaker saying um, all staff meeting in uh, half an hour time the staff aren't going to think Oh, he's got some great news. He's going to share a bonus with us. They will immediately think, oh, my goodness, um, the factory will close down. Mm. So our reaction is still usually negative because we have evolved to prepare for bad things. We, we are not prepared for good news. 
uh, as much in our brain. And, you know, we, we will take some time to adapt to all the different ways that our lives have changed in a very short time. I mean, the, this, the time from when we were hunting and gathering on the savannah, living in small communities, in evolutionary time is a blink of the eye. Mm, and mm. We, we live such different lives and, and trying to make those lives as happy and as well as we can takes some thinking. And, and as a leader, people need to understand that the people they lead will have these negative reactions to a lot of things. And I think that is an important aspect to know that our instincts still go that way. And, yeah. Yes, I mean, I think about the nervousness of being around people who are different from us on some dimension uh, was, uh, in evolutionary terms, pretty valuable trait when we lived in these groups of 150 mm. um, to hit or run away from people who look different from us was a good survival strategy. But when you're in a modern, diverse city, it turns out to be a terrible way of getting on. Uh, and likewise, our digestive, our, our love of fats and sugars is, uh, has served us well for 99% uh, of our time on the planet. just turns out not to be so good when those substances are, are ubiquitous. That's right. And, and um, a, a lot of our fear of strangers is, is very warranted when we were still living on the savannah and, you know, we, we didn't really want to run into strangers because we didn't know what it meant. Because we still have these instincts, our initial reactions to strange events, um, novel things may still be a, a, a fear, but luckily we can rationalise that. But we mm. need to understand too that there is um, uh, some fear in that, but education makes a big deal of difference. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and exposure. Uh, in terms of uh, how people should visit a zoo, uh, you've spent uh, way more time in, uh, in zoos than uh, many of us ever will. Um, what is it to, to get them, what are some tips and tricks that you would, uh, you would offer to, uh, to make the most of a zoo visit? I think, for one, in choosing the zoo, I'd make sure that it is a zoo that works for a good conservation outcome, uh, a not-for-profit a uh, zoo that uh, puts a lot of their time and effort and, and money into conservation outcomes for animals in the wild. Um, I'd make sure that the animal welfare is good so that I wouldn't have to feel guilty about spending money to go to a zoo with poor welfare. Um, but then once there, there are so many things you can do. I mean, let, me, let me stop mm. you on that. In uh, terms of the general ethics of, uh, of zoos, uh, are there... Are there aspects of, uh, of, the, of, of zoos that you think we will look back on in a couple of generations and uh, shake our heads? I think zoos have to not be a menagerie for the enjoyment of people. It needs to have a higher purpose mm -hmm. uh, and it needs to have a very strong education focus. People need to understand what our impact is on wildlife worldwide and what we can do about that and and most of the interpretation in the zoo where I worked so so long Taronga Zoo is geared around that people understanding what they can do to make sure that wildlife has a better chance of surviving um, 
And I would encourage people that if they are to visit a zoo, that they make sure it is a zoo that has that ethical standing, um, whereby we feel very privileged we can have uh, the care of these species um, in our zoos, but it needs to be justified by trying to do the very best for their wild cousins with every inch of our body and, and mind. Uh, it, that's the only thing that for me would justify um, having those animals in our care. And, and I must say, they have a good life. They have a very good life. They, they, we don't sacrifice them in, in the sense that, you know, they, they lead a poor quality life. But it's still, we, we, we owe it to them that we do the very best for their wild cousins in, in everything we do. Let me push you a little bit more on that, though. To the extent that we would think of primates as being having some similarity with humans, uh, some have argued that zoos have similar similarities with slavery, where people rationalised slavery by saying, "Well, slaves are, are better better treated in the countries to which they're taken than they were in the places where they were where they had, they'd been born," um, and and therefore it's 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 okay. We look back at the institution of slavery with some horror. Are you sure we won't look back at the um, capture of primates from the wild and placing them in zoos in the same way? Um, that's one thing that stopped a long time ago, the capture of animals uh, from the wild. So all the species in captivity now, um, capture from the wild is, is just not done at all unless it is for an immediate breed for release program. So, for example, um, it might be uh, Tasmanian uh, devils. Mm -hmm. We did capture from the wild to breed up a big captive population, which is now used all for release back to the wild. So, there, for one, there is no no uh, taking of gorillas or um, chimpanzees or bonobos from the wild. They do come into human care in Africa by um, people that have poached and tried to sell them at the market, they're then confiscated and zoos around the world support those places. Yes. Those animals don't go into captivity, they go back to release uh, in safer habitats wherever possible. There, there, there might be concern in the future. I really do not know. It will depends very much on how well we have done with raising the funds to protect them in the wild. And a lot mm. of the money for the sanctuaries uh, in Africa for great apes, for example, comes from zoos globally. Um, very little money comes from other places, from other conservation agencies. Zoos really provide a lot of the funding for those sanctuaries um, that rehabilitate them. but. It is, it is difficult, but chimpanzees in particular, um, I've often, you know, I was a keeper on the chimpanzee department too in my early days in the zoo, and you did always feel like you could have just done a bit more that day. You know, if only I had a few more hours, I, I could have given them more branches to pull apart for enrichment or whatever mm. it was. Mm. Um, but once again, the, the, the most important thing you provide them is as natural a life in their social um, 
circumstances that you can possibly do. So you you allow them to sort out their differences, to um, raise their babies, to you know interfere in that as little as possible, and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I mean that's one thing we thought about quite a lot is is how do you give these animals agency so that mm. they can make their own decisions as much as possible and, th- and that is a challenge it's difficult mm. so you've chosen your zoo ethically uh you're now at the front gate you've bought your bought your ticket mm-hmm. um, what should one do to make the most of the experience well i really like it if people uh particularly if they visit with children if they pick a theme and if you go on Mother's Day, maybe you want to look at mothers in the zoo. How does mothering happen? How are they different from how we do mothering? You might pick uh, smell and noses and how the noses are developed and, and how animals use their nose and how much mm. better they can smell than us. And Or you might go and smell, you know, what... How does the flying fox exhibit smell compared to the pigs or, you know, and why would it be so? Because we we haven't got great noses, but we can smell. And I really enjoy the, the smells in a zoo, the, the different animals. I love the smell of maned wolf. I looked after them probably of 20... Which species? Maned right? wolf. They're um, um, a very long-legged... Um, they're ni- neither a wolf... Uh, nor a dog it, it's in a completely different genus they're, they're quite tall they stand as tall as um, the tallest dog you can imagine and they they're gold flowy mane absolutely stunning once again a carnivore that eats a lot of fruit and there's they smell great um <laughs> and um so yeah I, I get a lot of enjoyment from the smells of the animals too uh, mm. I, I think that's fascinating that you know, most of the smell has to do with the poo that comes out the other end and, and what kind of food goes in in the first place. Um, but animals have their own smell. I love the the sort of um, perfume that some of the big kangaroos have. They have this scent plants on their chest and they might rub them against things and, you know, you get this smell, koala, smell of eucalyptus, obviously. Um, so I, I do enjoy the smells as well. So you can make that a whole theme, you know, what, how do animals use their noses, how important is it to them, what do they smell like? Or you can look at feet and claws, how animals look, locomotion, you know, some animals brachiate through the branches, mm. uh, others fly others walk how does it work in with where you find them in the wild why why would they have developed uh, in that way um, yeah so different themes to get uh, a different perspective um, from from the animals that are present in the zoo almost thinking of the zoo as a bit more like a museum which is more thematically organized that's right and you can you can do your own i mean zoos will sometimes have some of those thematic uh programs but you can do your own if if um you know you're particularly interested in in a aspect such as um hearing hearing is another one that you can go for you know the the fact that um, some species echolocate. Well, it's hard to see insectivorous bats in most zoos, but um, uh, 
you you can at least talk about the different things and you, the, the way animals' ears are shaped and the way mm. they, they use those shells to bring the sound back to their ears and um, the way owls um, have this, this sort of face shield of feathers that, that directs the hearing to their ears and their ears are a little bit offset so that they can pick up more nuances and so yeah you can do hearing a big thing but there, there are so many different things um feathers or fur um you know who's got what and why would it be so and what advice would you give to your teenage self Oh, that is difficult because I was a very stubborn teenager who probably didn't take much advice from anyone. Dutch um, and stubborn? I can't imagine it. <laughs> I know. So I think that would probably be um, uh, stick to your guns and defend what you need to defend. Mm. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Sometimes I'm worried that I don't believe in the goodness of humans as much as I used to, but I don't want to lose the hope in that. I'm worried about climate change like a lot of people are. I don't want to lose my ideas that humanity is basically good and we will get together and do something about it. Have you lost any of that optimism about the goodness of animals? Or has that grown as the uh, concern about humans has waned? Yeah. No, I think my feelings about animals are pretty similar. You know, I, I think it changes the more you know about animals, of course. Um, they're not always good, but they certainly, quite a lot of animals show empathy and compassion. Um, so I know, too, that that is something we have evolved with from our common ancestor, mammals. Um, the, 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 the big thing about mammals is nurturing because our offspring is born very dependent on us. And therefore, nurturing is a huge aspect of being a mammal. And I think being a higher mammal, being a group, you know, the naked ape, as Desmond Morris used to say, um, brings that nurturing to us and, and from nurturing you've got compassion and empathy and from that I think um, I have to believe that there's still room for optimism in the world, that humanity is basically good but sometimes I feel like I'm sliding a bit towards doubt. Mm. When are you most happy? Uh, reading a book. Any particular book? No, I'll read fiction, anything. Non-fiction? Uh, I read a lot of fiction. Um, for the research for the books I write, I read a lot of non-fiction, so I like to relax with some good fiction. Um, and um, I'll read the back of the, 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 back of the uh, crisp packet if I've got no words. I'm, I'm just <laughs> addicted to words. Does uh, this go back to your, uh, your background as a translator, do you think? I think even before that, I think as a child, I used to, you know, Holland, cold. Um, I was uh, a truant uh, in high school and uh, there was no beach to go to. And if it, well, there was a beach, but it was very cold. Um, so I used to go to the library and read. Love it. Love it. Do you read a lot in, in, in original languages? I like to, but it's very difficult to get the books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. very difficult to get them. So uh, I read mostly English now, I think 99%. If I can get a book in Dutch in particular, I really like it. Um, yeah, but it, it's very difficult. Mm. 
we may be covering the same ground. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, my husband Rob and I go for a big walk every morning. We try to do that wherever we are. We travel a lot, so before breakfast we've got to have a walk. He makes me walk up hills because it's good for my heart, apparently. But being a Dutch person, I don't do hills, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to be forced up the hills. But uh, So, yeah, I, I think that's really good. And we chat. Uh, whilst we do that and I think particularly with your partner having good communication but what makes you happy what can we do more of if that makes you happy is really important um, so some some physical exercise and then I think you know friends family um, spending time with people and really communicating talking to people not just superficial I think is important I I do like to ask people if they're happy um, I think it'd be good to know that they would tell me if they weren't and I might be able to do something. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that both those things, um, you know, relaxing with a good book but also exercise, eat well. Um, I think nutrition, I've seen it in animals. It's extremely important. We are what we eat and all that. It's very true. So I think good nutrition. So I like to cook, uh, make sure that it's all healthy. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I do cheese, absolutely. Um, whenever we have people over, I might do a cheese platter, but before it gets to them, I've probably had a hunk of cheese from each one of them on the platter before it gets to the guests. Yeah, what, love it. What's your favourite cheese? Um, oh, that's like, what's your favourite child? I love them all. <laughs> give give um, us a few. Okay, um, I love a good sharp cheese, mature cheese. I, I, I lived in Spain for a few years, so I like the Spanish machego. Manchego cheese, that's a, a sheep cheese, uh, if you get the good one. Uh, I like uh, blue vein cheeses. I like the Emmentalers, and there's a Dutch um, variety. It tastes a bit like an Emmentaler's Marsdom. Um, oh, look, I could go on. Gorgonzola, they're just any one of them, any one of them, as long as they haven't got fruit or nuts in them, which I don't think is, the, it, it's just not right. Sacrilegious. <laughs> Sacrilegious. <laughs> but no, any good cheese. Um, soft cheeses, hard cheeses, all of them. But I do like a good mature cheese. And finally, Anna, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think that's an ongoing project for me. I think often um, a negative experience may give me a better view of how I want to be in the world and go like, well, I would never do that to anyone. Um, so I think both positive experiences and negative experiences, I think a lot of your views come from the way you were brought up. I mean, my, both my parents had been very active during the Second World War. My dad worked in the underground and my mum was incredibly brave. She was one of those women who smuggled um, uh, landed parachutists along the dikes to the next stop. Um, she, uh, she was also good with languages and she worked for the German Ortskommandant and she smuggled everything she typed for him out on a... You know how people used to still use copy paper on the yes. typewriters in her handbag. Um, so oh, they were very extraordinary people. Yeah, they were. There was very huge pride in in them. Mm, uh. Yeah, they were. So they were very brave. They were also very damaged from their experiences. So um, traumatized, I think. But they did have, uh, you know, some moral beliefs that were obviously. Important 
important to them. And I think you, you do absorb that as a child. They were always very kind to animals. They were forever, you know, bringing home strays and all of that. So some of my love of animals comes from that. But as an adult, I think um, you have very different experiences with different people. My husband is a particularly good person. He never has anything bad to say about anyone, whereas I can be a bit more grumpy and he teaches me um, more kindness. And, you know, when I'm a bit annoyed with someone, he goes, oh, well, you don't know what's going on in their lives. And, you know, he's much nicer than I am. And I, I do learn <laughs> I do learn from that. Um, but I think you learn a bit from uh, a lot of the people you deal with good and bad and from that you form your own views about how you want to be in the world and how you want to treat other people and I'd like to think that I can treat people with um, compassion and kindness um, all the time and it's it's not always the case I'm sure I, I slip sometimes but but I do like to reflect upon it when I think I've been unkind and either apologise or make amends or make sure I don't do it again. Anna Wallenraven, author of Wild Leadership, thank you for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Absolutely my pleasure, Andrew. Nice to meet you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Ben Pronk, Natalie Gerogimenko, and Tim Flannery. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.